0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here with me. Our topic tonight is one I'm excited to share with you, as it's one that I personally find so fascinating, and that's the incredibly diverse and surprising world of fungi. Most of us, when we think of fungi... Think of mushrooms, but mushrooms are actually just a kind of fruit produced by fungi to help with reproduction. I will tell you all about mushrooms, but there is so much more to this topic. Fungi can be microscopic or enormous. They can grow in extreme environments on earth, like deserts or in deep-sea sediments, Some can even survive the intense cosmic and UV radiation encountered in space. They can also form symbiotic bonds, mutually beneficial relationships with certain species of plants and animals. As many of you probably know, biologically, fungi do not fit into the kingdom of plants nor the kingdom of animals. We will learn why that is, and what distinguishes fungi from these groupings. There's so much to discover, but before we do so, I encourage you to first take a deep breath. Find that perfect spot for your head on your pillow. Let the tension drain from your neck and shoulders. And off we go. So before we discuss biology and definitions, I told you that the diversity of sizes could be extreme. Do you know that the largest living organism on Earth could well be a fungus? In the pine forests of northeastern Oregon, in the Malheur National Forest, grows a species of fungus quite common to the western United States, Armillaria ostiae. But in this particular location, a giant specimen was identified, living mostly underground. Study of this specimen revealed that it is, in fact, several thousand years old, and estimated to cover three and a half square miles, which is about nine square kilometers, for a total weight of approximately 30,000 tons, or just over 66,000 pounds, Hence its nickname, the humongous fungus. For comparison, the largest living animal on earth is the blue whale, which can reach up to 200 tons. So this common fungus weighs as much as 150 adult blue whales, and is the size of nearly 1,500 American football fields and yet you could walk into the Malheur forest and never really see it. What is visible at the surface is the fungus's fruits, the mushrooms that pop up in the autumn. But as we now know, these are just the tip of the fungus iceberg. It is believed that this Armillaria fungus was able to reach such an impressive size thanks to the favorable climate and low competition for land and nutrients. This particular species of fungus feeds by invading trees, growing under their bark. It stops water from circulating in the affected tree, which kills it, but very slowly, over about thirty to forty years, and as it feeds on the tree's wood the fungus forms a white membrane under the bark that resembles latex, but is actually a living organism. Even though it is spread out over such a vast area, we know that it is the same continuous fungus. We know this because, in different places, the tissues are connected, and DNA tests have revealed that samples taken several kilometers apart are from the same organism. While it continues to grow underground, at the surface it makes mushrooms or feeds on trunks. To be clear, not all fungi are dangerous to trees. Many are even necessary for trees to live and to extract nutrients from the soil, as we will discuss later. Large fungi first appeared several hundred million years ago, during the Ordovician and Devonian periods, approximately 470 to 360 million years ago, and were the largest land-dwelling organisms at the time, at least that we know of. These ancient fungi were mushrooms of sorts that resembled tree trunks more than anything, they were about 3 feet wide and up to 26 feet, or 8 meters, in height. We know about them through terrestrial fossils, and study of these fossilized tissues suggests that they were part of the fungus kingdom, even though their exact relationship with existing fungi lineages today is uncertain. So this raises the question... What are fungi exactly? Historically, we had two man made categories animal or plant. These categories were based on mere observation, meant to easily distinguish one from the other. So, what is a plant? What is an animal? The traditional historical definition of plants, as opposed to animals, Was made in antiquity. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, distinguished plants as things that generally do not move versus animals that are generally mobile to catch their food. This distinction, these categories, persisted well into modern times. If historically the plant kingdom was defined as, by default, all living things that were not animals, that also included all fungi and algae. But it appeared that, in some cases, things were in fact more ambiguous. In the modern period, when an effort was made to better define these categories based on scientific evidence and criteria, it appeared that, if we were to more precisely define plants by common structural characteristics, including on a cellular level, not just based on visual observations, then fungi and some other organisms, like different types of algae, could not be considered part of the same kingdom as plants. The basis for our modern system of scientific understanding and classification of species has its roots in the work of eighteenth-century Swedish botanist and zoologist, Carl Linnaeus. He formalized the two ancient categories, naming them Vegetable alia and Animalia, again based purely on visual observation. But then in the nineteenth century came a boom of discovery, and countless species were observed or described— aided by new instruments like microscopes and, eventually, DNA. More in-depth scientific investigation revealed that it was not as simple as plants versus animals. Many other organisms, species both large and small, did not fit into these overly simplistic categories, as defined by Carl Linnaeus. For example, sponges... Externally, sponges, which are found in the ocean, look a lot like plants. They don't move to catch food. They don't even have a nervous digestive or circulatory system. But unlike plants, sponges filter their food from the water they live in. And on a cellular level, they are closer to animals, not plants. So though they were once considered plants, today... Sponges are classified as animals. But there are other organisms that are too different from the plant and animal kingdoms to be classified in either of the two. This is why new kingdoms were established. Fungi was one of these new kingdoms, but not the only one, and these classifications could still change in the future as we continue to broaden our understanding of the natural world. But as of today, the mainstream classifications of living organisms begins with the distinction between two big families of species based on the structure of their cells, prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Prokaryotes include bacteria and archaea, two kinds of single-cell organisms. In the history of evolution, it is believed that prokaryotes appeared first, and eukaryotes later, in stages. A big difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes is that eukaryotic cells have a nucleus. And though it's not always the case, eukaryotes can have multiple cells. All prokaryotes, on the other hand, are single-celled organisms, whereas eukaryotes have the capacity to form larger bodies when an individual multiplies its cells. Interestingly, there are significantly fewer eukaryotes than prokaryotes on Earth, but because of their large size, eukaryotes have the same global biomass as all prokaryotes combined. Eukaryotes are grouped into several branches— Plants are one of them, and so are animals and fungi, and there is an additional non-classified group called the protista that serves as a catch-all for species that cannot be put into any of the three other groups, hence why I mentioned that this classification may evolve yet again in the future. A catch-all category is useful, but does not represent a full understanding of the different branches of living things. The domain Protista includes thousands of species, often microscopic like many amoebas, but not all of them are tiny. For example, giant brown algae seaweeds, also known as kelp, could be mistaken for an aquatic plant, but they are not. They are protist organisms, that are very distinct from plants on a cellular level. So, up to this point, the kingdom of plants has been redefined from everything that wasn't animal centuries ago to, more accurately, eukaryotes that predominantly practice photosynthesis, meaning they produce their food and organic material using sunlight. Even in this narrower category, this still includes tens of thousands of species, including land plants and green algae. The animal kingdom includes organisms that, with a few exceptions, consume organic material, breathe oxygen, and are able to move, at least during a stage of their life. Many marine animals only move at an early stage, and then stay put. Animals can also reproduce sexually. There are approximately 1.5 million described animal species, with an estimated total of 7 million currently existing animal species. The fungi kingdom is separate because, unlike plants, fungi do not photosynthesize. They instead acquire food by absorbing molecules from their environment, typically by secreting digestive enzymes. The fact that they digest food from outside themselves could make them animals, but they are not animals due to their lack of mobility. A fungus's only way of moving is by growing, except for the spores they disseminate. The spores themselves, though, are not fungi. They just carry genetic information as a means of reproduction. We will see later that mushrooms are a means of disseminating spores, for some fungi. There are many other differences between fungi and animals. Animals are generally able to respond quickly to external stimuli, as they developed with nerves muscles, or tissues that can contract. Fungi lack these characteristics, and their only way to move in their environment is by changing their direction of growth or their metabolism, which is significantly slower than a nervous or muscular reaction. Fungi also do not digest food in a stomach, as they don't have one. And finally, the cells of a fungus are different, with cell walls that contain chitin, a complex molecule produced by many organisms. Chitin forms rigid surfaces, and is also found in the exoskeletons of insects and crustaceans as the main component of their external armor. Chitin, in its properties and function, is closest to the protein keratin found in animals. Keratin is naturally produced by many animal species, including humans, and is the main component of nails, hair, feathers, scales, and even horns. Keratin is a different molecule than chitin, a different polymer, but the two function very similarly. So, Fungi have chitin in their cell walls, making them rigid, and this is a major biological difference from plants and animals. Now that we have seen what differentiates fungi from other kingdoms, and why fungi are considered their own kingdom, let's explore the different forms they can take and human interactions with certain types of fungi. Not that humans have such a good understanding of the fungi kingdom. After all, the fungal kingdom is incredibly diverse, and is a continent that remains largely unexplored by us. The branch of biology that studies fungi is called mycology, a term that emerged in the 19th century. And while fungi includes two to four million species, Only the most visible terrestrial ones are known, about 150,000 species. This means that less than 10% of species in this kingdom have been described scientifically. Besides mycologists, most humans primarily interact with fungi as a source of food. Widespread use of fungi by humans started in prehistoric times, and... Apart from directly consuming mushrooms, humans used yeast, a type of fungus, for bread-making and fermentation. What is yeast, or, more precisely, what are yeast, as there are many types? We currently know of at least 1,500 described yeast species, but how do we know that these are fungi? Here we rely on certain characteristics. Are the eukaryotes made of a single cell with a nucleus? And is there chitin in their cell walls as is typical of fungi? Yeasts do in fact check these boxes, so this is how we know that they are fungi. They are unicellular fungi, but it is believed they evolved from multicellular ancestors. One interesting particularity of some yeast species is that they can assemble and develop multicellular characteristics, forming strings of connected cells, like a colony or community, of many individuals clustered together. They are fungi, so they feed by secreting enzymes around them. The enzyme is a molecule that accelerates chemical reactions, and so it acts as a catalyst to rearrange surrounding molecules into material that the yeast can absorb. This is the mechanism that makes yeast useful for fermentation. There is one yeast species, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, better known as baker's yeast or brewer's yeast, that converts carbohydrates, a.k.a. sugars, into carbon dioxide and alcohol. Carbon dioxide and alcohol are byproducts, waste, from its feeding cycle. These byproducts are what interested us humans. Carbon dioxide is released as gas and forms tiny bubbles inside a dough or batter. Or, in the case of fermented drinks like wine or beer, the yeast produces alcohol and the bubbles in beer. The Mechanism of Yeast Fermentation remained unknown until microbiology explained it. But early humans still learned to cultivate yeast, for example, by making and maintaining a sourdough starter, or to make alcohol with grains and fruit, even though they didn't really know or understand how any of it worked. These are ancient processes. When it comes to yeast rice bread... There are drawings depicting the bread-making process found in Egypt dating back 4,000 years. But the practice appeared long before that. Vessels as old as the Egyptian drawings, and that once contained alcohol, have been found in Israel. They were used to contain fermented beverages like beer and mead and studying their interior surfaces microscopically, revealed that the yeast colonies these vessels originally contained had survived thousands of years despite the absence of additional food. They had simply slowed down their metabolism, sort of hibernated, waiting for a time when they would once again be fed. This is the earliest direct biological evidence of yeast use in ancient cultures. It took a long time for scientists to understand the mechanism that made yeast active. Until the works of Louis Pasteur in 1857, yeast was believed to be a simple chemical catalyst rather than a living organism. Advancements in microbiology in the second half of the 19th century finally helped us to understand how yeast worked and subsequently to explore yeast's reproductive cycle. Yeast can reproduce sexually in rare cases, but most of the time does so asexually. Some yeasts can fission, that is to say, the yeast cell splits itself into two daughter cells that are identical. The more common method of asexual reproduction, though, is budding. This means that a small daughter bud, without a nucleus, forms on an existing yeast cell. The parent cell's nucleus then splits, with half migrating into the daughter cell. The bud cell continues to grow, stuck to its mother cell, until eventually it reaches maturity and separates as a new cell. When it comes to human consumption, yeasts are almost always safe. They cannot harm us, but there are a small number of yeasts that can be opportunistic pathogens and can cause fungal infections. They are considered opportunistic because these infections are relatively rare, affecting almost exclusively those individuals with compromised immune systems, That being said, the contribution of yeast to our daily lives is not 100% positive. Yeast can help produce food and enhance its flavor or texture, but under the right conditions can also spoil it. If yeast is present in foods that contain sugars or other carbon sources that can be metabolized, combined with the right conditions of temperature and acidity, they can proliferate and continue to actively ferment. Other organisms, such as certain bacteria, can spoil food and be actually dangerous to consume. But yeasts can instead alter the taste and texture of foods to the point of making them unsuitable for consumption. When this happens, the overgrowth of yeast within food products often appears on their surfaces, such as in cheeses, meats, or in that old jar of tomato sauce in the back of your fridge that has been open for too long. The overgrowth appears as what we in everyday language call mold. So what is mold? Mold is not a type of fungus. It is a structure, rather. One of the structures that certain fungi can form. Yeasts, when they proliferate, can become visible and will colloquially be called mold. But biologically this is not what they are. The actual mold, the structure, owes its appearance, which is dust-like, with different colors, to the formation of spores. Yeasts reproduce essentially asexually, as we just said, by budding or fission. So they wouldn't produce a mat of spores. But other fungi do. Fungi that are much more complex, multicellular, and bigger. To understand why, we need to talk about their bodies, their structures. In most multicellular fungi, the organism takes the shape of long, branching filaments. These grow by expanding the structure, which can then interact with the environment. This is a fungi's permanent body. Mushrooms are just temporary fruits, the spores that sometimes become visible because there are many vehicles for reproduction. These spores, though, are not the fungi themselves. These filaments are called Hypha, or the plural hyphae, and each hypha is microscopic. The hyphae become visible to the naked eye only when there are many and they are woven together into these cords. Each hypha is like a long chain of cells with a structure that's just a few cells in diameter, and this is where the chitin in the cell walls is useful. The chitin's rigidity gives the structure its shape, a filament which is flexible but holds together. Without chitin, it would be completely soft and limp. Hyphae grow from their tips. New cells are added, and this is how the filaments expand and grow. There is no nervous system in a fungus, but through mechanisms that are not yet fully understood the direction of fungal growth can be affected by the environment. For example, it has been observed that the application of an electric field could modify fungal growth, and somehow hyphae can also sense, can detect reproductive units, even from a distance, and grow toward them to establish contact. There is also a degree of coordination in the growth of different hyphae from the same organism. The filaments can weave through a permeable surface to penetrate it, like the bark of the pine trees we discussed in the beginning. The filaments by themselves have no muscles and cannot move. Their growth is not random, but responds to external stimuli. So these filaments, the hyphae, are the basic structure of most multicellular fungi and are the way the organism grows. Collectively, all these tiny threads form a root structure called mycelium. So while hyphae are generally transparent, when they cluster together to form mycelium, they appear like very fine, fluffy, white threads. But molds are not like that. They look generally dust-like and can have different colors. And why is that? Because of the spores. Molds become visible and take their familiar appearance on food or on a surface because, at the end of the hyphae's filaments, spores proliferate. And this is what produces the dusty texture and also makes various molds a health hazard, in case of allergies, or when the spores float free and cause disease. What are spores, by the way? They look like a kind of fine dust and are produced by different fungi or plants. Plants like ferns, for example. But let's take a closer look at spores. In biology, a spore is a unit of sexual or asexual reproduction made for dispersal. In terms of function, they are like the seeds of flowering plants, but with different mechanisms. Seeds have been fertilized and are already an embryo of a plant, enclosed in a protective covering. On earth, spores appeared long before seeds, and are, in fact, the step before seeds, not only in evolutionary terms, but also in the fertilization process. Flowering plants also produce spores. Pollen is a spore, for example. But pollination is a form of sexual reproduction. It mixes the genetic input of two individuals. Some plants can self-pollinate, but still, the embryo will be the product of two halves of genetic information. Some spores utilize sexual reproduction, but others are self-sufficient. Under the right conditions, a spore can start dividing itself and grow into a new organism, which will be a clone of the organism that produced it. Each individual spore, though, has little chance of fertilizing another, or of growing into its own organism. But plants and fungi that reproduce using spores compensate with quantity, with an abundance of spores so small they look like dust. Another way they compensate is with longevity. Spores are adapted for survival with some even lasting thousands of years. This means that a spore might still become a new specimen centuries after the death of the organism that created it. Returning to molds, they have a fluffy and dust-like aspect, and their colors, too, are due to this mat of spores that appears at the end of the hyphae. Molds tend to have a bad reputation in domestic life, and for good reason. They can be dangerous. On walls, they are usually an indication that humidity is excessive and that there is a lack of ventilation or cleaning. Molds can also spoil foods. But molds, or more precisely the fungi behind them, are vital despite their effect on humans. Why? Because they are responsible for a good portion of biodegradation, which is necessary for ecosystems to thrive and to recycle organic material. Land vegetation, especially forests, would be very different without fungi living in the ground and, to a lesser extent, on trees, constantly breaking down and recombining molecules. Molds are also useful in the production of pharmaceuticals. For example, mold gave us antibiotics, which were a game-changer for modern medicine. Molds are also essential to the production of various pigments, foods, and beverages. The chemical and pharmaceutical industries harvest enzymes from molds to use in production. So we now understand that mold is the dusty spores produced at the ends of mycelium, these clusters of hyphae. But as I've also mentioned, others bear fruit instead of spores, fruits better known as mushrooms or toadstools. There is so much to say about mushrooms, which are also important to humans as a source of food, of medicine, and more anecdotally, of psychoactive substances. One surprising thing about mushrooms is how fast they can grow. They sometimes seem to appear overnight, which they literally do, though their inception began long before they ever appeared. I already told you that the structure, the body, of a multicellular fungi, the mycelium, was made of hyphae, These thin threads of filaments in the ground or on dead matter, like a tree trunk. The hyphae form cords, called mycelial cords, that look similar to plant roots, and actually they have a similar function. They can carry nutrients over a very long distance. In some cases, as we will discuss later, parasitic fungi also use these cords to spread their infestation by growing from established clusters to uninfected parts of the host. Like tree roots, mycelial cords can sometimes be very strong. It is not common, but some species are able to slowly penetrate brick, stone, and cement with their cords of aggregated hyphae. Now, when the season is right and they have accumulated enough nutrients, some fungi will produce mushrooms as a way of disseminating their spores. Within the mycelium develops a small nodule, no bigger than a pinhead. This pinhead is just made of interwoven hyphae, and it expands into a roundish structure that looks a bit like a very small egg, preparing for the arrival of the mushroom. This little structure is called the button. Inside the button, there is intense activity as the mushroom is forming. Sometimes it is surrounded by a veil of mycelium that protects it. As the egg expands, the veil ruptures, and depending on the species, it may remain as a sort of cup at the base of the mushroom stem, if there is one, or as patches on the cap. It is also the remains of this veil that may form a sort of ring around the center of the stem, once the mushroom has popped up. When the mushroom is ready in its button, typically after about a week, the mushroom can now expand very rapidly by just absorbing water provided by the mycelium. All the cells are preformed, and they suddenly inflate like a water balloon, as the mycelium injects water carried through its web of filaments. This is how mushrooms pop up seemingly overnight. The button is already formed, the mycelium delivers water, and voila, a mushroom is born. But this bit of magic is also why mushrooms are short-lived and fragile. They are mainly water, contained by the most delicate of membranes. Typically spores are placed under the mushroom's cap, where they can be dispersed by wind or rain, which would have been nearly impossible for an underground fungus. But as you've likely seen yourself, mushrooms can be colourful, sometimes even spectacular, and have intriguing shapes. Why should a fungus spend its energy and precious resources on a mushroom that will exist only for a short time. This is believed to be an evolutionary feature. Bright colors and plump fruit attract animals that feed on the mushrooms, and this helps to disperse spores and with reproduction. It's very similar to how flowers use colors, scent, and shape to attract insects and other pollinators that will carry their pollen to another flower of the same species. These organisms offer food to animals, and the animals help them to reproduce, in one of nature's many fruitful symbiotic relationships. Now, as you know, the bright colors of mushrooms can also be a warning sign. Mankind has used mushrooms as a source of food since ancient times. But one thing humans learned early that you have to be selective when choosing mushrooms to ingest. Many species are edible, the majority actually, but it's always advisable to cook them before eating because heat destroys several potentially poisonous compounds. There is a small number of deadly species and several others that can cause severe symptoms in humans. It is supposed that The concentration of toxic compounds in mushrooms could also be an evolutionary feature selected for some species of fungi. When the mycelium forms a mushroom, it spends considerable energy and material to produce it. There would be a risk that animals would eat it while it's still a button, before the mushroom expands and becomes able to disperse spores. Making it poisonous is either a defense mechanism or a way of making the consumer vomit before digestion so the spores are not lost. Among the toxic compounds found in dangerous mushrooms, a recurring one is amatoxin, which is lethal even in small doses, even as little as half a mushroom. Amatoxins cause damage to cells once they enter someone's system. They perforate the membranes of cells, and since they travel through the bloodstream, are able to easily reach the organs in the body. Even a small quantity of amatoxin is enough to damage the liver and heart beyond repair. So if you go mushroom hunting and are unsure about a mushroom, it is always better to be on the safe side. Most of the time, poisonous mushrooms do not kill, but they can still cause a lot of damage. Wild mushrooms must always be cooked before eating. Never eat them raw. Another more long-term danger presented by mushrooms is that they have a propensity to absorb heavy metals like lead or mercury, including radioactive elements. This is not an issue for mushrooms bought in a supermarket and grown in a controlled environment. However, it can be a problem when regularly consuming wild mushrooms. Other types of compounds found in mushrooms are considerably less sinister and have actually been sought after in various native medicine traditions for their real or supposed healing properties. These are an informal group known as psilocybin mushrooms, better known as magic mushrooms or simply shrooms, that are taken for their psychedelic properties. It seems they were discovered in various parts of the world during the Stone Age, which seems appropriate. There is evidence of this in Africa and Europe, but they were particularly present in the Americas, North, Central, and South, and were used in religious, spiritual, or divinatory contexts, in indigenous cultures, where their use sometimes continues why do magic mushrooms have psychedelic effects? It's because of the psilocybin they contain, a compound that, when ingested, is broken down by the liver. That is why the effect is not immediate and takes about mm, 20 to 30 minutes to kick in. The resulting compound, psilocin, is responsible for the mushroom's psychoactive effects. It activates the same receptors in the brain that serotonin activates. Serotonin is a complex molecule, a neurotransmitter, that plays a crucial role in regulating various functions, including mood modulation, cognition, reward, learning, and memory. It also regulates psychological processes, such as vomiting or vasoconstriction, Which is the narrowing of blood vessels. The exact way serotonin works in our bodies is not entirely understood, but what matters here is that psilocin binds to and activates neurotransmitter receptors that are usually activated by serotonin, which is completely unusual for our brains. This activation by psilocin produces the characteristic trip including changes in mood, imagination, and perception, and often includes hallucinations. The way this substance works probably also explains why the experience can be very different from one person to the next. The experience results from the interaction of the molecule with someone's centers of perception, memory, and thought processes, which are very personal things. In a study conducted by Johns Hopkins Hospital, among a population of people who had consumed magic mushrooms, a third of them declared it had been the single most significant spiritual event in their lives. Yet another third, though, reported extreme anxiety caused by the experience. So taking shrooms is not without risks— The use of mushrooms and other recreational drugs is also illegal in many countries around the world. I told you earlier that fungi are also vital for trees. Sometimes they kill trees and consume them, but sometimes they form an essential partnership with plants. Tree roots by themselves are not very good at absorbing water and nutrients from the soil. In order for trees to reach their large size, they depend on a symbiotic association with a group of fungi called mycorrhizal fungi. This relationship is less complicated than it may sound. The mycorrhizal fungi are located inside and around the roots of plants and trees. There are several thousand different species of fungi that participate in this kind of partnership colonizing the root tissues of many different kinds of plants. Some of these fungi can only associate with one genus of plant, while others are generalists and can bond with different plants. The plants that benefit from this association include eucalyptus, birch, oak, different roses, pine, orchids, and many others. It is called a symbiotic relationship because each side brings something to the other. The plants need to extract nutrients from the soil, which they cannot absorb well through the cell walls of their roots, and this is where the fungus can help. It injects the nutrients, minerals, and water that the plant needs, additionally serving as a barrier against toxic elements. For example, it has been observed that trees can survive in contaminated or acidic soils, rich in metals, thanks to the fungi living in their roots. On the other hand, the plants feed the fungi. Fungi cannot synthesize sugars like plants can, through photosynthesis, so as a reward for its services, the fungus is given food and shelter in the roots of the tree. For the tree, the fungus is like an extension of its roots. We've known about this symbiosis for a long time, observing it as far back as the 19th century. But a more recent discovery is that trees can somehow exchange signals, can communicate using a form of communication that is not yet well understood. This communication appears to be facilitated by the contacts. Between trees' roots, and it seems that fungi might also play a role here. The mycelium, the web made of filaments of hyphae, has the capacity to transport molecules very well, and so it is possible that signals are traveling between trees or plants via these molecules themselves or their flow. Fossil records indicate that this association between fungi and plants is ancient, thousands of millions of years. But it is not known precisely when it began. In the current state of paleomycology, the study of fossil fungi, it is believed fungi diverged from other life forms around one and a half billion years ago, at a time when, to our knowledge, only single-cell forms of life existed the first fungi very likely remained single-celled for hundreds of millions of years. They would have evolved from a bacteria ancestor and for a long time would have stayed purely aquatic. The oldest and most disputed fossils of terrestrial fungi date back to about 400 million years ago, the time period called the Devonian, known to be a moment when life-forms suddenly became more diverse and complex. When I say suddenly, of course, I mean so on a geological scale, over a period of several million years. But it could have been before this time, during the Cambrian era, that fungi colonized the earth. The Cambrian was another period of rapid life expansion. It could even have happened before the Cambrian, Here doubt exists, because fossils that look a lot like fungi have been dated as early as 635 million years ago. But it is unclear whether they were already terrestrial fungi or something else. Due to their structure and composition, fungi just do not fossilize well. They cannot biomineralize, that is to say their cellular structure cannot be replaced by minerals and become rock. Biomineralization is the phenomenon that creates the best fossils, so the fossil record for fungi is relatively small and contains prints rather than three-dimensional single-cell fungi. So it doesn't help much to study their ancient forms. Fossil records become better later, when fungi grew in size and formed mycelium. In any case, fungi adapted very well to land life and progressed to impressive sizes during the Devonian. As I mentioned earlier, there were fungi comparable to trees in size. This makes specialists believe that they dominated the land before photosynthetic plants did, or at least they were already one of the dominant life forms when plants colonize the land. It is hard to imagine that fungi could have thrived alone on land, if only because they cannot produce their own food, and they live on existing organic matter. So somehow fungi had to follow plants on the continent, rather than precede them. But they could have lived in wet soils on the earth's continents, long before land animals arrived. And interestingly, because they only need food to survive and bearable conditions of temperature and humidity, it has been observed that fungi did not collapse with other forms of life during extinction events. They could even have thrived during some of them. For example, it has been observed that the evidence of fossilized fungi suddenly increased approximately 66 million years ago during the Cretaceous Tertiary Extinction. This was a mass extinction event that killed off most dinosaurs and many other species. One possible explanation is that this mass extinction could have turned Earth into basically an outsized compost pile. With all this organic matter available, and no predators to control the population, fungi would have thrived. For a period of time, maybe a few thousand years, fungi would have flourished while countless species of animals and plants disappeared. I already talked about the symbiotic relationship between plants and fungi, but fungi are also known to partner with insects. Several groups of ants and termites cultivate fungi, and they do so for several purposes. As a food source, and also as a structural component of their nests. There are also insects like wood wasps, and at least one species of stingray bees, that have included fungi in their reproductive cycle. When they lay eggs or leave larvae behind, they leave them with a stash of spores or of developed fungi. The fungi provide food to the larvae that will not be entirely consumed. So on the one hand, it helps the insects to reproduce successfully, and on the other hand, this association helps to disseminate the fungi or their spores to new locations. Yet another form of symbiosis is with algae and fungus, which form lichen. Found almost everywhere on earth, in a variety of colors and shapes, lichen could be mistaken for plants, but they are not. They are composite organisms in which algae live in a mutualistic relationship with fungi, forming what could be seen as a tiny, self-contained ecosystem. The algae produce their own food through photosynthesis, and the fungi provide a protective structure, a medium, where their tiny, single-celled hosts can live and multiply. And lichens have no roots which is why they can grow on almost any surface. They just need air and light. When lichens grow on trees, they are not parasites. They only use the trunk as a surface, a substrate, or sometimes in rainforest or temperate woodlands, they hang from branches. There are other cases, though, when the relationship with fungi is not mutualistic, but rather parasitic, wherein the fungi feeds on the host organism. For agriculture, of course, the most devastating of them is a species called the rice blast fungus. It is a plague to rice farmers and can also attack other grains. It is estimated that it destroys enough rice every year to feed 60 million people. There are also carnivorous fungi that capture tiny worms, nematodes. Of course, the fungi cannot actively hunt, because fungi are immobile. Instead, they use a kind of passive hunting technique, forming constricting rings or sticky nets with their hyphae that make the nematode unable to move, after which they digest it with enzymes. Fungi can also be parasites to other fungi. Among the tens of thousands of known species, a large variety of survival strategies exist. Fungi can also go so far as to become parasites to insects, eating them from the inside, turning the insects into zombies controlled by their hyphae that grow inside the animal. This is thankfully fairly rare, and does not last very long because, eventually, the host will die and decompose. It sounds and looks rather sinister, and is the terrifying premise of the video game and television series The Last of Us, but it is a brilliant survival strategy to feed and gain mobility at the same time. There are so many more things I could say about fungi. Like mycologists, we've really just scratched the surface of the fungi kingdom. As with all of my stories, this was intended only as an introduction that hopefully makes you want to know more. As we reach the end of our story, and you drift into sleep, I hope your dreams, like parasitic fungi, don't turn you into a zombie, but instead like mycorrhizal fungi, feed and nourish you, as only sleep can, from your roots to your topmost branches. I'll be back soon with another story on Lights Out Library. Sleep well, dear friends.